You're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. On today's show, Andrew Knowlton and I hop on the phone with senior editor Julia Kramer, who's on the road doing research for our annual Hot 10 Best New Restaurants issue in September. And that means that she's eating and eating and eating some more life on the road as a restaurant critic. But first, David Remnick, editor-in-chief of The New Yorker. He, um, as one colleague of his told me, he's a machine. He's written six books. He won the Pulitzer Prize. And oh yeah, because he doesn't have enough to do, he now hosts the weekly New Yorker Radio Hour on WNYC, and it's also a podcast. And somewhere among all that, among the articles and the writing and the editing and the hosting, the guy finds time to eat. So uh, here we are, me and David Remnick. All right, David, um, let's start at the beginning. <laughs> what, what did you have for breakfast mother's, this morning? There's milk, a half a bagel and four cups of coffee. What kind of bagel? You know, this is an interesting subject. This could, could be the full 45 minutes. <laughs> I, I'm going day after tomorrow. Somebody invited me to go somewhere downtown and um, Sedell's, you know, uh, yes. and the, the, the invitation was, we need to go to this place. They're doing interesting things with bagels. <laughs> with Jewish. So <laughs> Sedell's, for you, for those of you who don't know, is owned by the guys who own Carbone and Santina and stuff. And it's kind of a zhuzhed up version of a classic Jewish. Am deli. I going to be happy? It's You're going to be too judged. You might be a little fatutzed. <laughs> <laughs> too much, you think. But but the food is good. The, the, okay. the, the, the Carbone guys, they know how to cook. They know good food, but they're, you know, they're into gussing stuff up. Look, look you have to understand, I, I live in the West 80s, like the heart of the heart of the Upper West Side, just as you would imagine and make a cartoon of me. You, you got to understand the only restaurant I've ever had an account in, in, in my life, and I'm sure till the end of my life, is Barney Greengrass on 86th and, and, and Amsterdam. And I'm loyal to it for two reasons. One, it's terrific. And two, because it's a block and a half from where I live. So when I'm, and, and this is a palace of, of smoked fish. After you, when you leave there and you smell your sweatshirt or whatever you're wearing, you smell smoked Yeah. for the next eight hours. I and, mean, there's no question. So when I go to sort of fancier places, not uh, two things. I feel either disloyal to Gary Greengrass, the proprietor. Um, I just love that you know they're Gary and not Barney is the proprietor. Barney was the late father, Oliver Sholem. <laughs> and Barney, say, how long, rest in peace. How long has Barney Greengrass been around for? About. Oh, I don't know. I like, don't know. I mean, 40, decades. Forty. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and I go there sometimes. And you know, and this is a restaurant desert. This is, yeah. this is a, or at least was once, a fairly Jewish neighborhood lacking Chinese food, which is a demographic and culinary mystery that I, I don't understand. Han Dynasty has tried to try it up. But so if I go to some fancier place, even Russ and Daughters, that's like going to 21 or something <laughs> by comparison. All right. So you toasted an old bagel this morning. Butter or cream cheese? No. Neither. What do you no. mean no? No, is what I'm saying. No. No what? N neither. Wait, neither, you, you, neither butter right. nor cream oh, cheese. Oh my God, we might have to stop recording. Wait, um. <laughs> no, I'm, believe me, I, I make up for it. Here's wait, you, wait, you ate what, a, you ate a dry bagel, toasted. Yeah, here's here's what it's about in the morning. There's really only it, it's basically to offset. Oh my God, the nausea that would come from four cups of what is it's essentially triple espresso. So I get up quite early, and um, and there's a lot of coffee involved. 
you failed the bagel test. A coffee now- Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I do not accept that I failed the bagel test. I would say that I failed the, you know, elaborate, you know, application of- Dave. No, it's not gunk. A, no, it's not a lab. It's just cream cheese. First of all, David, cream David, cheese is David, for amateurs. A little schmear, just a schmear. No, That's that all good. you need. It's not that good. <laughs> by the way, it's, it's really something to get lectured on food and beverage by a guy who's drinking ice water out of a giant Tupperware tub. Well, just, right. just for well, the let record. me let me let me explain why. So in the BA test kitchen, we have all these um like they look. If you're gonna get like a, um, I thought a, you were gonna soak your no. hand because <laughs> you sprained it. These are it's like a quart container from a Chinese restaurant. If you were to order like you know noodle soup or something. Uh, and this is what they do in the restaurant kitchens because you I can't see, have I glass see. in a kitchen. So all the line cooks, as they're sweating over the stove, they all okay. have their little cork. You're an containers. editor, not a line cook. I know, but it's like it's like if you're a sports reporter and you like to think like, oh yeah, I played I played basketball Wait back when I was I in covered, high school. I covered baseball. I didn't schlep a bat around. Yeah, but you like to think that maybe back in the day you had some game, and this is like one yet. way to sort of connect <laughs> to that game is drinking out of a cork container. All right, you you start the morning in a boring way, but you know you let's let's rewind a bit because you've had an interesting life, and I, I imagine you actually have eaten some interesting things in your day. Um, you graduated from Princeton after growing up in New Jersey and- Two very different New Jerseys. <laughs> I was about to say. Yeah. But you ended up at the Washington Post shortly after college. Um, and you were there when Ben Bradley was Ben Bradley there. was very much in charge. And that guy, and I mean, for those was, he, for those of listeners who don't know Ben Bradley, if you've ever seen All the President's Men, he was played by Jason Robards. Played by Jason Robards, an incredibly charismatic and kind of like a French military um, officer, but who was capable of every four-letter word, but a Boston Brahmin at the same time. Sorry for the mixed metaphor. And I was catching him toward the end of his time, well past Watergate and Pentagon Papers, which made his name with Woodward and Bernstein. Let's just say Washington is not a town of that kind of figure. So he, he was even more vivid than he might have been in New York. I worked at as an intern at Washingtonian Magazine. I grew up in D.C. when I was 20, and this was like 89, I guess. Yeah. And Bradley came in to visit Phil Merrill, who was the publisher then. And literally the whole newsroom just kind of stopped and stared at this man striding and he through was the two, newsroom. And he was two years from retirement yeah. when, you, when you met him, you know, with these great forearms and this kind of... You know, silvery hair, yeah. slicked back, square and the, jaw. And... Oh my God! I, so, I, I really. What, were you intimidated by him as a reporter? Did you even talk to him? I'll tell you. Well, I was, a, I was a young reporter, and I remember I was doing a for the style section, which was a very sexy part of the newspaper in those days, which it meant to basically inherit the new journalism from Rolling Stone and yeah. Esquire and those kind of places. And I was doing a profile of- um, You're one of the few people who have referred to the Washington Post as sexy. At that time, <laughs> it was unbelievably sexy in its post-Watergate days. This was, you know, oh, yeah. it, it was the New York Times- Redford and Newman. And exactly. It was, <laughs> the, 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 the Times was the boring establishment, and the, and the Post was the, you know, the daring upstart in, in an establishment yeah. terms. So I'm writing a profile of Daniel Patrick Moynihan, senator from New York, uh, very eccentric, very brilliant, and also was known to enjoy an adult beverage, uh, perhaps even more than once a day. And, you know, I was reporting about all these aspects and I started reporting about the drinking. And at one point I asked Moynihan, you know, tell me about your drinking during the course of the day. And I'll, I'll you know, he said, well, at lunch. And he had this kind of <laughs> plummy accent, even though he was grew up in Hell's Kitchen. And he basically described um, a lunch that would be at minimum, you know, uh, a bottle of wine, maybe split with someone. And then the evening was just a bacchanalia. The <laughs> evening was, you know, a couple bottles of wine, a dinner, 
you know, maybe a scotch or two before postprandial, blah, blah, blah. If something, I don't know about your drinking habits, but if I well, did we'll, it, we'll I would there. have to, I would have to be under a bed for the next and two he, weeks. And he was one of the most respected wrote, senators of And he was day. the most brilliant senator and he wrote a book a year and he was incredibly, as functional, I, I, I don't want to call him an alcoholic, but let's just say as functioning a uh, copious drinker as is possible. So I ask about this. I ask AIDS about this. I get called into Bradley's office. This has never happened to me before. Yeah. I was How old are you at this point? 26. Okay, wow. And his feet are up on the desk. So all I'm seeing are the soles of two feet. And from behind it, I hear this voice say, so what are you doing? That's the way he spoke. Yeah. What, what, what's with you and Moynihan? And I, you know, I'm 26 years old and he's this legend. And I start explaining myself very quickly. Do you call him Mr. Bradley? <laughs> Goddamn right, I call him Mr. Bradley. And I said, well, you know, I'm doing this and I'm reporting this angle and this angle. Da, 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 da. And at the end, I made my big mistake. And I said, so, so don't worry. And suddenly oh, no. his head moved to the side of his shoes. So now I could see the head. And he looks at me. Are we allowed to upset it? He's okay. Yeah. He looks at me and he said, me? Worry? Fucking unbelievable. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. And that was the end of my first meeting with Ben Bradley. And so- which was, by the way, unbelievably instructive and inspiring. Yeah. He clearly had gotten a letter or a phone call from Moynihan, and he was ritualistically calling me, and not to dress me down, but to just put me on notice that this was the big time. Yeah. That's all. It was it actually to let you know that he knew, that they knew, that. Precisely. So did you include it in the piece? Damn right I yeah. did. Um, and, and, was and, there any, and was there any pushback afterwards? From Bradley? Absolutely or, not. Or from the Moynihan office? I don't think they loved it. Yeah, but. Didn't, didn't get any threats. It, it was it was hardly a, a they, takedown. I heard that they disliked the piece so much that they had you shipped off to Russia. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I went off to Russia. So in, what year was that? I went off to Russia in the very beginning of 1988, and this when, was this was before Moscow was sexy with like it was just getting sexy. Just Gorbachev get, had come in, in 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 March of 1985. He had really started accelerating reforms by late 87. So I just walked into, with minimal experience, I was 29 years old, and only one of two reporters for the Washington Post covering a, a, you know, a place that was going through a revolution of so many different kinds, 10 time zones of, of, of landmass yeah. to deal with. I was in heaven. So wait, so you, you volunteered for this? Absolutely. Because like at that age, I'm like, I'm living in New York City. No. I'm going to go out every night oh, and no, no, no. I would never live anywhere else. So you were like, I want to go to Russia. No, and I cannot begin to tell you, I, since we're, we're at least implicitly talking about food, this was still the Soviet era. There was no, I, I, there were no restaurants that you would describe as restaurants. There are a few kind of wedding palace type places that you would never go but to. But this didn't concern you? Like I'm moving to a country with bread lines and like and I, Here's the thing warm about vodka me. And I, I'm a lunatic. I love this activity of journalism in an unhealthy way. Unhealthy. And I fess up to it readily. And, as it, as and, evidenced by the dry bagel and coffee. The, the day gets richer, but yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. And... So basically work from nine in the morning till two, three o'clock in the morning every day for four years. But every, everything you did was work. I would say the number of restaurants I went to in the course of that time, I don't know, 20 nights. I mean, it was just what I ate there was horrible. There were lines for potatoes. 
There were stores that were empty. We ordered, because we had hard currency yeah. as foreigners, we ordered food from abroad, but of the most you know, primitive kind, you were lucky to see a lettuce. I mean, it was really bad. It was but only you, at the very end of the time mm -hmm. when the, when the econo economics began to change and there was kind of, you know, neo or proto-capitalism starting, there were cooperative restaurants and they were horrible, horrible, um, th that you started to go out. There was a pizza hut that came to, to <laughs> Moscow. This was like revelatory. Manna from heaven. Oh my God. <laughs> So what did, wait, was there any good food to be had and where would you get it if there was? We, well, there was a, there was a market. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you, you know, kept the word Chernobyl out of your mind, you bought stuff there, but you also ordered stuff from abroad and you just ate poorly. But did you have, did, I gained weight cause you ate crap. Yeah. Did you ever have, did any good home cooked meals? Did people invite you over? Not or bad. And, they did yeah. the best. They, they put a lot of effort into it, but you know, the, the mantra of all food writing is, oh, the ingredients and don't muck too much with the ingredients. The ingredients was so yeah. primitive. There were places within the Soviet Union where there was amazing cooking. Mm -hmm. uh, Georgia in particular, um, and uh, New York has a bunch of Georgian restaurants. Yeah. But where food was concerned, I, I think my wife and I deserve enormous credit in when she was in Estonia and you guys met over there no no, no we, we, we got married shortly before leaving okay my wife Esther Fine worked for the New York Times yep. I worked for the Washington Post it was like a you know Adam's rib or something and she was in Estonia in in the capital Tallinn it was and that was where the first ethnic revolution first regional revolution started and she was very pregnant and starving and working and she calls down to the restaurant in the hotel. And this is Estonia, which is very advanced compared to Russia. And she says, I'd like a pizza. Can you send a pizza up to the oh, room? No. Long pause. And she worried, maybe it's my Russian because in <laughs> Estonia, people's Russian is not so. No, no, no. Say, we don't understand. It's as if, again, it was as if she had introduced some concept, like room service. Yeah. She said, let me explain if you make the pizza in the restaurant, instead of serving it to me there, but bring it to me here, I will pay extra and tip the guy who brings it. Long pause. Okay. Heads are exploding. Right Heads now. are exploding. <laughs> this is the most unbelievable concept in history. She's responsible for room service in an entire country. Cut to we're having a party in Moscow, and there was an Uzbek restaurant that wasn't, it wasn't bad, uh, called Yakimanka. And we wanted their food at our apartment. Mm, boy. So Esther so, goes to Yakimanka and says, you know, that plof that you make, this big rice dish with stuff on it, that's nothing very complicated, quite, quite good by <laughs> standards of then. I want to come here and I will give you three huge bowls and you fill it with plof oh. and then I will take it out, <laughs> out. Out of the restaurant. Out of the restaurant and we will pay you extra for this service. Long pause. We think it's the Uzbek Russian yeah. problem. No, no, no. And she invented I take out too. Take so she should be a bigger food Is there a statue person of her? than Ina Garten yeah. or Mario Batali combined. <laughs> they, should be, they should have replaced the Lenin statue for the inventor of takeout and room service. All right. So you wrote a book that won a Pulitzer uh, about your time there, Lenin's Tomb. Yep. Yep. In 1993. You've somehow read a lot of books while editing a magazine 48 weeks a year. And then in 2010, 
you, because you had nothing else to do, you wrote a book on Obama, The Bridge, um, 900 some odd pages. Did you share any meals with the president while you were reporting? I, I did. I feel you did your reporting. I, I, <laughs> I had a lunch with him once before that. I got invited to have lunch with him. At the White House or elsewhere? In, in, the, in the room next to the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's officially called? <laughs> the I room think, next to the Oval I think, Office? to be fair, it was the room that Bill Clinton used for other purposes. Oh, Jesus. It looks different now. <laughs> they got rid of the disco ball. And, um, and we're in a room, and it's a very long table, and you're at, uh, at the opposite end of the table for lunch. And we're, you know, having our conversation about the Middle East. And I realize I've got a little teeny weeny salad here and a little bit of hummus here and, the, and a very, very sparse second salad for what seems to be, I, I'm assuming that some, you know, mondo piece of meatloaf yeah. or turkey or something's coming next. But you that, can't ask. That's it, baby. That's, that's it. what you're oh getting. My God. That's why he's so thin. Oh. He's a pretty abstemious guy. So the minute I got out of the White House and I went to get a cab, I just, I snarfed down a hot dog on the street. I was so hungry. <laughs> All right, let's talk lunch. All right, because on one hand, you, <laughs> the amount of content that you edit and create yourself a year is astounding, and I still yeah, don't but it, get it. Yeah, but it doesn't burn calories. Well, I know. The other day, we had lunch a little while back at North End Grill, one of Danny Meyer's restaurants by here. And, and a week or two later, I was there with a colleague, and they had this pizza on the menu, and it was a... Like a shaved potato. Sounds great. With eggs and pancetta I'd on get top. That a, I'd get that in a heartbeat. Well, the problem was I got it. And there was like three fried eggs. You know, they put the, pota- the eggs on top of the pizza and it cooks in the oven. And the yeah. pancetta's all crispy. And these like yeah. shingles of crispy potatoes with yeah. olive oil and rosemary. I ate the entire thing. I come back to the office. I had a meeting with a couple of writers about ideas. I and was literally asleep. on the floor. <laughs> I'm like, guys, You're I have to lie down. You're a sensitive guy. I have no problem with that. So you don't feel like I need you need to eat like sensibly all day to just do all this stuff you're doing all day. You can. Well, here's the thing: what what the dirty secret is, in addition to eating lunch, that if you wander around the office, so and so has a giant, you know, bag of peanut M and M's. But this... you no, you don't tell me you do that. Of course I do that. Really? Yeah. Oh. I thought you were a guy who had like an apple and like a power bar or something. You and... mean like half a grapefruit and yeah. black coffee? Yeah. No, 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 no. Uh-oh. No, I love. I have to tell you, I, I love food. I love reading about food. We're doing a food issue this week. Oh well, yeah, easy- that's why you're on. It's the easiest issue. No offense. <laughs> it is the easiest issue for me to edit because people want to write about this because it it some it's not, it's not it's, work to them. It's joyful, or yeah. they go somewhere. And their job is not to cover um, ISIS, but to go to you know something interesting about yeah. food. And I and 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 it's such a relief because the New Yorker, you know, one issue will be all you know the the main piece will about be about the horrible life of domestic workers yeah. or the war somewhere or or you know the world is is a fallen and difficult and tragic place. <laughs> you're, you're really selling the magazine right now, David. <laughs> well, the, the hell with it. That's what it is. Yeah. But there's also a hell of a lot of joy in it, yeah. and some of it has to do with putting things on our mind. But the secret of all this is that food writing is an illusion. And I discovered it. I'm, I'll never forget it. It was in the mid-'80s, and I was a big fan of Calvin Trillin, who I, at that yeah. time I, of course, never met. And I was sent to cover Wimbledon as a sports reporter for the Washington Post. 
And I had this piece by Trillin where he's going on about certain things in London, London, Chinese food here, and then about the latkes, the potato pancakes, and Golders Green, which at that time had a constituency of, um, I think, even Orthodox Jews. And Golders Green is really far from Wimbledon. And I go all the way out, and he had described this with, in, in, in such detail and, and, and humor and da-da-da. And I get there, and the go- I had the latkes. They're all right. They're, all right. <laughs> <laughs> They're okay. It's like, that, it's like this, the fetish with barbecue. Yeah. It's all about the illusion. There's, there's, I agree. There's something about um, when food writers travel to some far out neighborhood in Queens to check out this little Thai restaurant in a strip mall. They feel because they did that, because they went there, because they made this trek that the food has to be worth it. And they want to describe it in a way that sort of validates this journey. And it's, and it's, a, and it's a way of writing about place. It's a way of writing about memory and pleasure and escape. Yeah. And, you know, so, because if it were just about what's the best latka, that's boring as hell. Lists to me, I, the last thing I want to read is, a, is, is list stuff. It, it, it is a big difference. Th- th- then the real writing kicks in. So New Yorker's been doing its uh, food issue since the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Have you ever written a piece for the food issue? I, I don't believe I have. Wow. I mean, because, you know, it's, it's one thing to put Bigfoot somebody on uh, Barack Obama, quite another to Bigfoot somebody on barbecue. Then the hell would come. You know, my favorite, favorite, favorite is A.J. Liebling. And Liebling, who was a New Yorker writer for many years, wrote about his passions. He wrote about the press, the old New York world of 12 newspapers. He wrote about um, boxing, famously. He wrote about the Second World War, where he was a really great foreign correspondent. And he loved France. And to him... That meant everything. It was where he went when he was very young, so he discovered himself as a human being, but he uses food as the vehicle, food and sex. And then as he ages, he goes to France, as, again, as a war correspondent, and his refuge is, again, food, because everything else is hell. And then as a slightly older man, he goes back and he has food, and what is he doing using it for? It's a way of recovering his youth, um, exciting himself about his is life on earth. I mean, it, it, it sounds terribly serious, but that's what it's about. There's certain food writers that, um, that are all about the thing itself. And that's, that's fine. But I want that food writing to make an extra leap, not just to be yeah. about I mean, that restaurant. I always think that, you know, yeah, food is a connector. It connects you to your past, to your family, to your friends, why you meet mm-hmm. friends for lunch. You mm-hmm. don't meet friends mm-hmm. at, at the library, you know, like you, that you share a meal and, and the meal is almost an excuse. Yeah. Uh, to get together. You have a, a Liebling book with you. Is that- I which, do. Which this one is, is this? It's my favorite one. It's called Between Meals, An Appetite for Paris. That's, can I just say that's my favorite food book also? Well, then maybe the, the, so I just, I promised you that I would, um, or maybe I'm forcing you, in the very, very beginning of the book, he's talking about the greatest instance of food writing in the history of Western literature, which is Proust takes a Madeleine cookie and he dips it in tea or Marcel is the name of the character, and he eats this, and the, the, the taste brings back the memory. That's the conceit of the, of the 2,000, 3,000-page uh, novel. It brings back the memory of his entire enchanted childhood. A taste of one cookie, by the way, a fairly bland butter cookie, <laughs> dipped in tea. And, and, and Lee, I, would have, I would have dipped it in chocolate. And, well, the, which is apropos to what I'm about to say. So 
Liebling writes, in the light of what Proust wrote with so mild a stimulus, it is the world's loss that he did not have a heartier appetite. On a dozen Gardner's Island oysters, a bowl of clam chowder, a peck of steamers, some bay scallops, three sautéed soft-shell crabs, a few ears of fresh-picked corn, a thin swordfish steak of generous area, a pair of lobsters, and a Long Island duck, he might have written a masterpiece. The primary requisite for writing well about food is a good appetite. And Liebling... <laughs> a, and, peck, a peck of steamers. And by the way, he ate meals like yeah. this. He would, eat, he would go with friends who had similarly good appetites, and Liebling was, there's no other way to say this, gigantic. Like he, was a, he was a glutton. He would go to a restaurant, they would mark off three, four hours, and they would basically eat their way through the food chain. Because that's what he's describing yeah. there. You're, yeah. you're writing up your way, you're eating your way up the evolutionary chain. You start chain. with the shellfish on the bottom of the ocean and- Exactly. Yeah. So your appreciation, your, your appreciation for the biological world is deeper by consuming it. How, how would you contrast or compare Trillin's writing? Trillin is kind of the reigning sort of godfather of food writing in the current era to, to Liebling's. And Tr Trilling's way of writing about food was a way of getting around the country and, way, and eventually around the world. He would, he, he was writing a column for the New Yorker um, called U.S. Journal. And he was on what for the, by New Yorker standards, if not newspaper standards, but New Yorker standards, a really rigorous, speedy schedule of uh, reporting one week, writing another week, recovering and researching another week and begin the spin cycle again. They were short pieces, again, by New Yorker standards. Part of what he loved when he'd go to, you know, Tuscaloosa, Alabama or Biloxi, Mississippi is... He wanted to eat what was great there. Mm -hmm. This is now a cliche for people, yeah. but, but in those days, what a visiting businessman would do in Kansas City is go to um, what what Bud Trillin would call the Shea Casa, <laughs> uh, you know, the kind of phony French yeah. restaurant. And people would, we have a very fine French restaurant here in Kansas City, the only polite answer to which was, no, you don't. Yeah. What you've got is Arthur Bryant's, which is on its own terms, fantastic. Barbecue. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you want to get what he can't get back in New York. So this was his way of nourishing himself. He would he would go to um, wherever it was, Southern California, yeah. um, Illinois, and and find out really what was really great. My my when I was growing up in D.C., my father's favorite book was American Fried by Trillin, and it was like the Passover Haggadah. It had like a, <laughs> a special place on the bookshelf that was always there. And he's like, "You have to read this one day." Yeah. With lunch now, so I, I know you're you're meeting a, a one of the company executives for lunch after this. Um, are you a power lunch guy? Do you buy into that? My idea of heaven <laughs> is going to Queens and going to Spicy and Tasty, for example, which is a great Szechuan dive and have you ever had stinky tofu oh adam, adam. I, I i i saw them in concert like a few times when i was a teenager um. stinky tofu is fermented tofu and it it smells as it arrives at the table like a full diaper and and the chinese people around us seeing that we had ordered this were so amused because in Sichuan, in its province this is street food it, but it tastes like less like tofu than it does like Roquefort cheese. Mm. It's absolutely delicious, and and I think for many many people, absolutely revolting. Do you eat it straight, or do you with the sauce or anything, or just? It's first of all, you you, you by the time that that arrives at the table, it should come late in the meal. Mm. Your what, mouth is like, so on fire, yeah. and in my case, in my case, I am 
schwitzing. I am sweating to such a degree. I look like um, I look like LeBron at the half. I'm I'm hypersensitive to to that which I love. You have a better hairline than LeBron, though. So well, that's about it, my <laughs> <Yeah>. friend. <laughs> that's about it. Um, all right, David, I, I know you've got a lot to do, So, be, but before we let you go, sure. we're going to do our lightning round of questions. We have a lightning round? Yeah. Okay. So, do I have answers here? Might be either fine. or, cooking or seamless? Seamless. Seamless. Blonde on blonde or blood on the tracks? Blonde on blonde. Why? Because if I listen to blood on the tracks all the time, you'd, you'd, you'd be on, you know, you'd, it's, it's too sad an album to listen to all the time. Interesting. Uh, I Dylan think... used to say, D- Dylan used to say, Blood on the Tracks. I don't know why people enjoy this because <laughs> it was the portrait of his collapsed marriage. Coffee or espresso? Espresso. But but the volume of a cup of coffee. Oh, like a double espresso. Double is modest. Do you add a I sugar? Che- I, no. 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 Just straight. Please. Oh, I'm soft. I like a sugar and I like a spot of uh, hot milk. My concession to the progress of the day is the macchiatoization of the day. So that, so I can, <laughs> <No> <laughs> that, that, that helps, that helps more volume get down the gut. Uh, Woody Allen or Larry David? Well, Woody Allen in terms of total achievement. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing. Oh, it's, he's, he's like the, uh, David Remnick of filmmaking. Just keeps on cranking I, I, it out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. On the subject of consumption, print or digital? Both. I, I couldn't care less. Yeah. I could. I really couldn't care less. All right. Well, don't take that's a kind of a half-ass answer, but we'll take it. We'll, we'll, no, no, no. Here's the thing. I I, I want to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Words are words. I like to read. Brisket or ribs? Ah, uh, brisket. Yeah. All right. Last question: butter or olive oil? For what? Well, if you ever cook, I would say, which one Which one are you cooking with? Well, don't you use both? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, David Remnick. Thanks for stopping by, David. Equivocating to the end. Thanks for having me, Adam. All right, that was David Remnick of The New Yorker. And now, Deputy Editor Andrew Nolte and I... Get on the phone and call senior editor Julia Kramer to see how she's surviving uh, with her restaurant research across the nation. Here we go. Kramer, good morning. Where are you? Um, good morning. I'm in San Francisco. Um, I'm looking out my window at an aerosol store. At a what? Aerosols. It's like a comfortable shoe store. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Have you bought a pair yet? I'm honestly thinking about it because... One of my shoelaces broke yesterday, so I need some new shoes. Life on the road. Um, so, Julia, you've been on the road for how many days now researching the uh, Hot 10 for our 2016 Best New Restaurants issue? This is day five. I feel like I've been gone for maybe a year. <laughs> and for our listeners, like, so you're traveling solo, and like, so did you go out to dinner by yourself last night? Like, how does this work? Well, I really can't go out to eat alone because I just can't get enough food. If I went out by myself and ordered as much food as I feel I need to eat to really experience the restaurant, people would think I was an absolute psychopath. So I have to invite people out with me. My sister lives in San Francisco, so that's easy here. In L.A., it was crazy. I took out eight different people. Like from Tinder or what? Where did you find these people? Did you walk down the street and be like, would you like to go out? (laughs) 
actually one of my Uber drivers, I was telling him what I was doing and he was like, you know, you should just post on Craigslist that you're looking for someone to go out to eat with. That would be an absolute nightmare. Um, no, I like have some random family there and, uh, people I know from college and stuff. So, um, how many restaurants total so far in five days? I went to 12 in LA and I would have gone to more yesterday, but I was supposed to be in San Francisco by lunchtime, but my flight from LA to San Francisco got diverted to San Jose and I didn't get here till three. So I only went to two dinners last night. So last yesterday was, was, um, not, not the best day. Let's talk LA then. What are the most number of restaurants you went into, went to in one night in LA? My peak day was probably Saturday. I went to three places for lunch, and they were all amazing. And then I went to two places for dinner that were both really good. So that was a winning. So day. how do you do that? Like for the for the non professional eater, you go to three lunch places, all of which you like a lot. Who's eating what? How do you decide how much to eat? Who's your partner? How does how does that work? Well, so the first thing that I'm doing is exercising, which is. Not necessarily my usual MO, but my goal for this trip, because I'm on this trip for 16 days, is to exercise every day. And there's this chain of yoga places called Core Power. And weirdly enough, they have Core Power in every city that I'm going to. So you work up an appetite in the morning and then you, so who'd you go to lunch with in LA? And, and yeah, talk us through those meals. So went to yoga, then went to the first restaurant, which was just like a breakfast lunch place. And I went there by myself and I ordered a couple of things at the bar. And then they had this amazing pastry case, um, like coffee bar area. So this is my dream come true. So I just ordered one of everything from the pastry case to go and then sat outside in the parking lot like a psychopath having like one bite of each thing. <laughs> I've been there before. <laughs> so then I took an Uber to the next place. And that was sort of a quick serve hole in the wall type place. So again, I could just order one thing for there. And then I ordered a couple more things to go. And then again, kind of tried them on the street. Um, and that place was really cool. And then I met my 70 year old cousin at a restaurant in a strip mall in a really random part of town. And the place didn't even have a sign on it. And I was like, oh my God, where did I make my 70-year-old cousin meet me? But it turned out to be awesome. And even she loved it. What kind of food? I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give it away, but I would say um, very forward-thinking, interested in a lot of fermentation and a lot of grains and pickled things on the menu. Mm, one of those places. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how was the drinking going, Kramer? <laughs> the drinking going oh my god okay so this is classic situation that i got myself into friday night i landed in la um i don't know around three went straight to yoga then met some friends at the first restaurant that i was gonna hit that night and it's just so hard because for the people that you're taking out this is their one night on the town but for you or me it's one of 16. So I just went so hard with my friends on Friday night. We just like went to a bunch of places. The last place we were at, first we were just having beer and then we were having soju. It was a Korean place. You know, they were obviously wanted to go out to a bar and all this stuff. And I just woke up the next morning. And I was like, that is the dumbest thing I have 
ever done. Yeah, you can't go hard on the first night. That's like when you go to like a, a, a friend's wedding sort of weekend. It's like a three-day right. thing. And if you go hard that first night, you're just a wreck the rest of the weekend. Kramer, I have I have one question because I don't think we've ever talked about this. Is uh-huh. um, Like you said, you're going to, over the next two weeks, you'll probably go to 100 restaurants. And you think you're going to remember everything about that restaurant because at the time it seemed so meaningful or this one sandwich or this one sauce that you had. You know, people always ask me, do you go into the bathroom, you know, during your meal and start typing on your phone or, or how do you do it? Yeah. People always ask me that when I was a restaurant critic too. And I was like, if you can't remember what was good about a restaurant, then that restaurant was not very good. Um, Mm. but no, there's basically three ways how I remember everything, especially when you're just going to multiple places in one night. One is I take pictures of every single dish that comes out, even if it's really dark, terrible lighting. I don't do it to post on Instagram. I just do it to have the memory of that dish. The second thing, which I know you do also, is steal all the menus. (laughs) I'm good at stealing menus. (laughs) And the third thing is, yeah, the next morning I'll go through and I'll just do one page in my journal notebook thing of every single thing about the restaurant, everything I ate, every design item that I thought was cool. Oh, they had these green glass water pitchers that were really beautiful. Every notable interaction that I had, one page in my notebook about the place, and then I can always write more about it later. Mm -hmm. But at least I got all that stuff down on paper. Kramer, have you had the meat sweats yet? Oh my God. Um, Well, I have to say the first night when I went to this Korean barbecue place, And then the next morning, I went to hot yoga, and I could just smell (laughs) in my hair all the smoke and Mm. meat and stuff from that restaurant. It was truly disgusting. (laughs) Well, Kramer, I'm I'm proud of you so far. Uh, You sound good. Oh, thank you, Andrew. But, Andrew, for real, can we talk on the phone after this? Because I have a couple things to ask you. Okay. We can talk on the phone. We'll do that off the record. All right. Thanks, Julia. Okay. Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by Belle Cushing and Carrie Polis, with editing by Mitra Kaboli and additional help from Christina Che and Lily Sherman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell us anything about this or any episode, please email us at bonapetitfoodcast at gmail.com. 